Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian communities and cults, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. friends, welcome back to Failed Utopia. Today, we're continuing on with part two of Thomas More's novel, Utopia. When we left off in episode one, we were in the midst of a very long story the character Raphael Hithliday was telling the fictional Thomas More and his friend Peter Giles about that one time he went to England and had dinner with a cardinal. He blamed all of England's problems on rich assholes and too many sheep, and lamented the conundrum of what to do with a nation's soldiers during peacetime. Here we continue Hithliday's discourse and hear more about the death penalty, how kings who are selfish stupidly act against their own interests, and a socially awkward exchange between a court jester and a monk. As we come in, this is Hithliday speaking. Sir Thomas More's Utopia Book One Continued While I was talking thus, the counselor who was present had prepared an answer and had resolved to resume all I had said, according to the formality of a debate, in which things are generally repeated more faithfully than they are answered, as if the chief trial to be made were of men's memories. You have talked prettily for a stranger, said he, having heard of many things among us which you have not been able to consider well, but I will make the whole matter plain to you, and will first repeat in order all that you have said. Then I will show how much your ignorance of our affairs has misled you, and will, in the last place, answer all your arguments. And that I may begin where I promised, there were four things. Hold your peace, said the cardinal. This will take up too much time. Therefore, we will at present ease you of the trouble of answering and reserve it to our next meeting, which shall be tomorrow, if Raphael's affairs and yours can admit of it. But Raphael, he said to me, I would gladly know upon what reason it is that you think theft ought not to be punished by death. Would you give way to it? Or do you propose any other punishment that will be more useful to the public? For since death does not restrain theft, if men thought their lives would be safe, what fear or force could restrain ill men? On the contrary, they would look on the mitigation of the punishment as an invitation to commit more crimes. I answered, It seems to me a very unjust thing to take away a man's life for a little money, for nothing in the world can be of equal value with a man's life. And if it is said that it is not for the money that one suffers, but for his breaking the law, I must say, extreme justice is an extreme injury, for we ought not to approve of these terrible laws that make the smallest offenses capital, nor of that opinion of the Stoics that makes all crimes equal. As if there were no difference to be made between the killing a man and the taking his purse between which, if we examine things impartially, there is no likeness nor proportion. God has commanded us not to kill, 
and shall we kill so easily for a little money? But if one shall say it, that by that law we are only forbid to kill any, except when the laws of the land allow it, upon the same grounds laws may be made in some cases to allow of adultery and perjury. For God having taken from us the right of disposing either of our own or of other people's lives, if it is pretended that the mutual consent of man in making laws can authorize manslaughter in the cases in which God has given us no example, that it frees people from the obligation of the divine law, and so makes murder a lawful action. What is this but to give a preference to human beings before the divine? And if this is once admitted, by the same rule, men may in all other things put what restrictions they please upon the laws of God. If by the Mosaical law, though it was rough and severe, as being a yoke laid on an obstinate and servile nation, men were only fined and not put to death for theft, we cannot imagine that in this new law of mercy, in which God trusts us with the tenderness of a father, he has given us a greater license to cruelty than he did to the Jews. Upon these reasons it is that I think putting thieves to death is not lawful, and it is plain and obvious that it is absurd and of ill consequence to the commonwealth that a thief and a murderer should be equally punished. For if a robber sees that his danger is the same, if he is convicted of theft as if he were guilty of murder, this will naturally incite him to kill the person whom otherwise he would only have robbed, since if the punishment is the same, there's more security and less danger of discovery when he that can best make it is put out of the way, so that terrifying thieves too much provokes them to cruelty. But as to the question, what more convenient way of punishment can be found? I think it is much easier to find out that than to invent anything that is worse. Why should we doubt but the way that was so long in use among the old Romans, who understood so well the arts of government, was very proper for their punishment? They condemned such as they found guilty of great crimes to work their whole lives in quarries, or to dig in mines with chains about them. But the method that I liked best was that which I observed in my travels in Persia among the Polylarets, who are a considerable and well-governed people. They pay a yearly tribute to the king of Persia, but in all other respects they are a free nation and governed by their own laws. They lie far from the sea and are environed with hills, and being contented with the productions of their own country which is very fruitful, they have little commerce with any other nation. And as they, according to the genius of their country, have no inclination to enlarge their borders, so their mountains and the pension they pay to the Persian secure them from all invasions. Thus they have no wars among them. They live rather conveniently than with splendor, and may be rather called a happy nation than either eminent or famous for I do not think that they are known so much as by name to any but their next neighbors. Those that are found guilty of theft among them are bound to make restitution to the owner, and not as it is in other places to the prince, for they reckon that the prince has no more right to the stolen goods than the thief. But if that which was stolen is no more in being, then the goods of the thieves are estimated, 
and restitution being made out of them, the remainder is given to their wives and children, and they themselves are condemned to serve in the public works, but are neither imprisoned nor chained unless there happened to be some extraordinary circumstances in their crimes. They go about loose and free, working for the public. If they are idle or backward to work, they are whipped. But if they work hard, they are well used and treated without any mark of reproach. Only the lists of them are called always at night, and then they are shut up. They suffer no other uneasiness but this of constant labor. For as they work for the public, so they are well entertained out of the public stock, which is done differently in different places. In some places, whatever is bestowed on them is raised by a charitable contribution. And though this way may seem uncertain, yet so merciful are the inclinations of that people that they are plentifully supplied by it. But in other places, public revenues are set aside for them, or there is a constant tax of a pull money raised for their maintenance. In some places, they are set to no public work, but every private man that has occasion to hire workmen goes to the marketplaces and hires them of the public, a little lower than he would do a freeman. If they go lazily about their task, he may quicken them with the whip. By this means, there is always some piece of work or other to be done by them. And beside their livelihood, they earn somewhat still to the public. They all wear a peculiar habit of one certain color, and their hair is cropped a little above their ears, and a piece of one of their ears is cut off. Their friends are allowed to give them either meat, drink, or clothes, so they are of their proper color, but it is death both to the giver and taker if they give them money. Nor is it less penal for any freeman to take money from them, upon any account whatsoever, and it is also death for any of these slaves, so they are called, to handle arms. Those of every division of the country are distinguished by a peculiar mark, which it is capital for them to lay aside, to go out of their bounds, or to talk with a slave of another jurisdiction. And the very attempt of an escape is no less penal than an escape itself. It is death for any other slave to be accessory to it, and if a freeman engages in it, he is condemned to slavery. Those that discover it are rewarded, if freemen in money, and if slaves, with liberty, together with a pardon for being accessory to it. That, so they might find their account, rather in repenting of their engaging in such a design than in persisting in it. These are their laws and rules in relation to robbery, and it is obvious that they are as advantageous as they are mild and gentle, since vice is not only destroyed and men preserved, but they treat it in such a manner as to make them see the necessity of being honest and of employing the rest of their lives in repairing the injuries they have formerly done to society. Nor is there any hazard of their falling back to their old customs, and so little do travelers apprehend mischief from them that they generally make use of them for guides from one jurisdiction to another. For there is nothing left them by which they can rob, or be the better for it, since as they are disarmed, so the very having of money is a sufficient conviction. And as they are certainly punished if discovered, so they cannot hope to escape. For their habit being in all parts of it different from what is commonly worn, they cannot fly away unless they would go naked, 
and even their cropped ear would betray them. The only danger to be feared from them is their conspiring against the government, but those of one division and neighborhood can do nothing to any purpose unless a general conspiracy were laid amongst all the slaves of several jurisdictions, which cannot be done since they cannot meet or talk together. Nor will any venture on a design where the concealment would be so dangerous and the discovery so profitable. None are quite hopeless of recovering their freedom, since by their obedience and patience, and by giving good grounds to believe that they will change their manner of life for the future, they may expect at last to obtain their liberty. And some are every year restored to it, upon the good character that is given of them. When I had related all this, I added that I did not see why such a method might not be followed with more advantage than could ever be expected from that severe justice which the counselor magnified so much. To this he answered that it could never take place in England without endangering the whole nation. As he said this, he shook his head, made some grimaces, and held his peace, while all the company seemed of his opinion, except the cardinal, who said that it was not easy to form a judgment of its success, since it was a method that never yet had been tried. But if, said he, when the sentence of death was passed upon a thief, the prince would reprieve him for a while and make the experiment upon him, denying him the privilege of a sanctuary, and then if it had a good effect upon him, it might take place, and if it did not succeed, the worst would be to execute the sentence on the condemned persons at last. And I do not see, added he, why it would be either unjust, inconvenient, or at all dangerous to admit of such a delay. In my opinion, the vagabonds ought to be treated in the same manner, against whom, though we have made many laws, yet we have not been able to gain our end. When the cardinal had done, they all commended the motion, though they had despised it when it came from me, but more particularly commended what related to the vagabonds, because it was his own observation. I do not know whether it be worthwhile to tell what followed, for it was very ridiculous, but I shall venture at it, for as it is not foreign to this matter, so some good use may be made of it. There was a jester standing by that counterfeited the fool so naturally that he seemed to really be one. The jests which he offered were so cold and dull that we laughed more at him than at them. Yet sometimes he said, as it were by chance, things that were not unpleasant, so as to justify the old proverb that he who throws the dice often will sometimes have a lucky hit. When one of the company had said that I had taken care of the thieves and the cardinal had taken care of the vagabonds, so that there remained nothing but that some public provision might be made for the poor, whom sickness or old age had disabled from labor. Leave that to me, said the fool, and I shall take care of them, for there is no sort of people whose sight I abhor more, having been so often vexed with them and with their sad complaints, but as dolefully soever as they have told their tale, they could never prevail so far as to draw one penny from me. For either I had no mind to give them anything, or when I had a mind to do it, I had nothing to give them. And now they know me so well that they will not lose their labor, but let me pass without giving me any trouble, because they hope for nothing, 
no more in faith than if I were a priest. But I would have made a law for sending all these beggars to monasteries, the men to the Benedictines to be made lay brothers, and the women to be nuns. The cardinal smiled and approved of it in jest, but the rest liked it in earnest. There was a divine present, who, though he was a grave, morose man, yet he was so pleased with this reflection that was made on the priests and the monks that he began to play with the fool and said to him, This will not deliver you from all beggars, except you take care of us friars. That is done already, answered the fool, for the cardinal has provided for you by what he proposed for restraining vagabonds and setting them to work, for I know no vagabonds like you. This was well entertained by the whole company, who, looking at the cardinal, perceived that he was not ill-pleased at all. Only the friar himself was vexed, as may be easily imagined, and fell into such a passion that he could not forbear railing at the fool, and calling him knave, slanderer, backbiter, and son of perdition, and then cited some dreadful threatenings out of the scriptures against him. Now the jester thought he was in his element and laid about him freely. Good friar, said he, be not angry, for it is written, in patience possess your soul. The friar answered, for I shall give you his own words, I am not angry, you hangman, at least I do not sin in it, for the psalmist says, be ye angry and sin not. Upon this, the cardinal admonished him gently and wished him to govern his passions. No, my lord, said he, I speak not but from a good zeal, which I ought to have, for holy men have had a good zeal, as it is said, the zeal of thy house hath eaten me up. And we sing in our church that those who mocked Elisha as he went up to the house of God felt the effects of his zeal. With that, the mocker, that rogue, that scoundrel will perhaps feel. You do this perhaps with a good intention, said the cardinal. But in my opinion, it were wiser in you and perhaps better for you not to engage in so ridiculous a contest with a fool. No, my lord, answered he, that were not wisely done. For Solomon, the wisest of men, said, Answer a fool according to his folly, which I now do, and show him the ditch into which he will fall, if he is not aware of it. For if the many mockers of Elisha, who was but one bald man, felt the effect of his zeal, what will become of one mocker of so many friars, among whom there are so many bald men? We have likewise a bull by which all that jeer us are excommunicated. When the cardinal saw that there was no end of this matter, he made a sign to the fool to withdraw, turned the discourse another way, and soon after rose from the table and, dismissing us, went to hear causes. Thus, Mr. Moore, I have run out into a tedious story of the length of which I had been ashamed, if, as you earnestly begged it of me, I had not observed you to hearken to it, as if you had no mind to lose any part of it. I might have contracted it, but I resolved to give it to you at large that you might observe how those that despised what I had proposed no sooner perceived that the cardinal did not dislike it, but presently approved of it, fawned so on him and flattered him to such a degree that they in good earnest applauded those things that he only liked in jest. 
and from hence you may gather how little courtiers would value either me or my counsels. To this I answered, You have done me a great kindness in this relation. For as everything has been related by you, both wisely and pleasantly, so you have made me imagine that I was in my own country and grown young again, by recalling that good cardinal to my thoughts, in whose family I was bred from my childhood. And though you are upon other accounts very dear to me, yet you are the dearer, because you honor his memory so much. But after all this, I cannot change my opinion. For I still think that if you could overcome that aversion which you have to the courts of princes, you might, by the advice which it is in your power to give, do a great deal of good to mankind. And this is the chief design that every good man ought to propose to himself in living. For your friend Plato thinks that nations will be happy when either philosophers become kings or kings become philosophers. It is no wonder if we are so far from that happiness, while philosophers will not think it is their duty to assist kings with their counsels. They are not so base-minded, said he, but that they would willingly do it. Many of them have already done it by their books, if those that are in power would but hearken to their good advice. But Plato judged right, that except kings themselves became philosophers, they who from their childhood are corrupted with false notions would never fall in entirely with the counsels of philosophers, and this he himself found to be true in the person of Dionysus. Do not you think that if I were about any king, proposing good laws to him and endeavoring to root out all the cursed seeds of evil that I found in him, I should either be turned out of his court or at least be laughed at for my pains? For instance, what could it signify if I were about the king of France and were called into his cabinet council, where several wise men in his hearing were proposing many expedients? as by what arts and practices Milan may be kept, and Naples, that had so oft slipped out of their hands, recovered, how the Venetians, and after them the rest of Italy may be subdued, and then how Flanders, Brabant, and all Burgundy, and some other kingdoms which he has swallowed already in his designs, may be added to his empire. One proposes a league with the Venetians, to be kept as long as he finds his account in it, and that he ought to communicate counsels with them and give them some share of the spoil till his success makes him need or fear them less, and then it will be easily taken out of their hands. Another proposes the hiring the Germans and the securing the Switzers by pensions. Another proposes the gaining the emperor by money, which is omnipotent with him. Another proposes a peace with the king of Aragon, and in order to cement it, the yielding up the king of Navarre's pretensions. Another thinks the prince of Castile is to be wrought on, by the hope of an alliance, and that some of his courtiers are to be gained to the French faction by pensions. The hardest point of all is what to do with England. A treaty of peace is to be set on foot, and if their alliance is not to be depended on, yet it is to be made as firm as possible, and they are to be called friends but suspected as enemies, therefore the Scots are to be kept in readiness to be let loose upon England on every occasion. And some banished nobleman is to be supported underhand, for by the league it cannot be done avowedly, who has a pretension to the crown, 
by which means that suspected prince may be kept in awe. Now when things are in so great a fermentation and so many gallant men are joining councils, how to carry on the war, if so mean a man as I should stand up and wish them to change all their councils to let Italy alone and stay at home, since the kingdom of France was indeed greater than could be well governed by one man, that therefore he ought not to think of adding others to it, and if after this I should propose to them the resolutions of the Acorians, a people that lie on the southeast of Utopia, who long ago engaged in war in order to add to the dominions of their prince another kingdom, to which he had some pretensions by an ancient alliance. This they conquered, but found that the trouble of keeping it was equal to that by which it was gained, that the conquered people were always either in rebellion or exposed to foreign invasions, while they were obliged to be incessantly at war, either for or against them, and consequently could never disband their army. That in the meantime they were oppressed with taxes, their money went out of the kingdom, their blood was spilt for the glory of their king, without procuring the least advantage to the people, who received not the smallest benefit from it even in time of peace, and that their manners being corrupted by a long war, robbery and murders everywhere abounded, and their laws fell into contempt while their king, distracted with the care of two kingdoms, was the less able to apply his mind to the interests of either. When they saw this, and that there would be no end to these evils, they by joint councils made a humble address to their king, desiring him to choose which of the two kingdoms he had the greatest mind to keep, since he could not hold on to both. For they were too great a people to be governed by a divided king, since no man would willingly have a groom that should be in common between him and another, upon which the good prince was forced to quit his new kingdom to one of his friends, who was not long after dethroned, and to be contented with his old one. To this I would add that, after all those warlike attempts, the vast confusions and the consumption both of treasure and of people that must follow them, Perhaps upon some misfortune they might be forced to throw up all at last. Therefore it seemed much more eligible that the king should improve his ancient kingdom all he could, and make it flourish as much as possible, that he should love his people and be beloved by them, that he should live among them, govern them gently, and let other kingdoms alone, since that which had fallen to his share was big enough, if not too big for him. Pray, how do you think would such a speech as this be heard? I confess, said I, I think not very well. But what, said he, if I should sort with another kind of ministers, whose chief contrivances and consultations were by what art the prince's treasures might be increased, where one proposes raising the value of specie with the king's debts are large, and lowering it when his revenues were to come in, so that he might both pay much with a little, and in a little receive a great deal. Another proposes a pretense of a war, that money might be raised in order to carry it on, and that a peace be concluded as soon as that was done. And this with such appearances of religion as might work on the people, and make them impute it to the piety of their prince, and to his tenderness for the lives of his subjects. A third offers some musty old laws that have been antiquated by a long disuse, and which, as they had been forgotten by all the subjects, 
so they had been also broken by them, and proposes the levying the penalties of these laws, that as it would bring in a vast treasure, so there might be a very good pretense for it, since it would look like the executing a law and the doing of justice. A fourth proposes the prohibiting of many things under severe penalties, especially such as were against the interest of the people, and then the dispensing with these prohibitions upon great compositions to those who might find their advantage in breaking them. This would serve two ends, both of them acceptable to many, for as those whose avarice led them to transgress would be severely fined, so the selling licenses dear would look as if a prince were tender of his people and would not easily or at low rates dispense with anything that might be against the public good. Another proposes that the judges must be made sure that they may declare always in favor of the prerogative, and that they must be often sent for to court, that the king may hear them argue those points in which he is concerned. Since, how unjust soever any of his pretensions may be, still yet some one or another of them, either out of contradiction to others, or the pride of singularity, or to make their court, would find out some pretense or other to give the king a fair color to carry the point. For if the judges but differ in opinion, the clearest thing in the world is made by that means disputable. And truth being once brought into question, the king may then take advantage to expound the law for his own profit, while the judges that stand out will be brought over, either out of fear or modesty. And they being thus gained, all of them may be sent to the bench to give sentence boldly, as the king would have it. For fair pretenses will never be wanting when sentence is to be given in the prince's favor. It will either be said that equity lies of his side, or some words in the law will be found sounding that way, or some forced sense will be put to them. And when all other things fail, the king's undoubted prerogative will be pretended as that which is above all law and to which a religious judge ought to have a special regard. Thus, all consent to that maxim of Crassus, that a prince cannot have treasure enough, since he must maintain his armies out of it. That a king, even though he would, can do nothing unjustly, that all property is in him, not accepting the very persons of his subjects, and that no man has any other property but that which the king out of his goodness thinks fit to leave him. And they think it is the prince's interest that there be as little of this left as may be, as if it were his advantage that his people should have neither riches nor liberty, since these things make them less easy and less willing to submit to a cruel and unjust government. Whereas necessity and poverty blunts them, makes them patient, beats them down, and breaks that height of spirit that might otherwise dispose them to rebel. Now, what if, after all these prepositions were made, I should rise up and assert that such counsels were both unbecoming a king and mischievous to him, and that not only his honor but his safety consisted more in his people's wealth than in his own? If I should show that they choose a king for their own sake and not for his, that by his care and endeavors they may be both easy and safe, and that therefore a prince ought to take more care of his people's happiness than of his own, as a shepherd is to take more care of his flock than of himself. It is also certain that they are much mistaken that think the poverty of a nation is a means of the public safety. Who quarrel more than beggars? 
Who does more earnestly long for a change than he that is uneasy in his present circumstances? And who run to create confusions with so desperate a boldness as those who have nothing to lose, hope to gain by them? If a king should fall under such contempt or envy that he could not keep his subjects in their duty, but by oppression and ill usage, and by rendering them poor and miserable, it were certainly better for him to quit his kingdom than to retain it by such methods as makes him, while he keeps the name of authority, lose the majesty due to it. Nor is it so becoming the dignity of a king to reign over beggars as over rich and happy subjects. And therefore, Fabricius, a man of a noble and exalted temper, said he would rather govern rich men than be rich himself, since for one man to abound in wealth and pleasure when all about him are mourning and groaning is to be a jailer and not a king. He is an unskillful physician that cannot cure one disease without casting his patient into another. So he that can find no other way for correcting the errors of his people, but by taking from them the conveniences of life, shows that he knows not what it is to govern a free nation. He himself ought rather to shake off his sloth or to lay down his pride, for the contempt or hatred that his people have for him takes its rise from the vices in himself. Let him live upon what belongs to him without wronging others and accommodate his expense to his revenue. Let him punish crimes and by his wise conduct, let him endeavor to prevent them rather than be severe when he has suffered them to be too common. Let him not rashly revive laws that are abrogated by disuse, especially if they have been long forgotten and never wanted and let him never take any penalty for the breach of them, to which a judge would not give way in a private man, but would look on him as a crafty and unjust person for pretending to it. Okay, guys, that was the second section of book one. At the beginning of this section, Raphael Hithloday had just finished his long list of complaints about England's government. Then when he gets done with that, a lawyer who was also present at this dinner with the cardinal and other royal courtiers chimes in. And he's like raring to go. And in lawyer fashion, he tells Hithloday, you've said some really pretty words, but you don't know anything about England, so it's not surprising that you're so confused. And he says he's going to approach this debate style and repeat back everything Hitlerday just said and then refute it item by item. At this point, thank God, the cardinal steps in and is like, no, man, that's going to take way too long. Ain't nobody got time for that. Let's just table that whole thing for now, but we can talk about it tomorrow if everyone has time. So he just totally sidelines this lawyer. I have no idea if this was Thomas More's jokey way of acknowledging that this entire discourse was starting to get really long and boring, but that's how I'm choosing to interpret it. But the Cardinal does want to hear about Hithloday's criticism of the death penalty for thieves. And he's like, well, what's the problem? And how else are we supposed to keep all these terrible people from stealing if we don't put the fear of God into them by making sure they know we put thieves to death in this country? 
And Hitlerday had a couple of things to say about his thinking on that. The first of which was a religious argument. The gist of that was God has told men not to kill. And if men decide that they're going to change the rule or make an exception, then it's a slippery slope. And where does it end? Men could just as easily decide to make different laws in regards to plenty of other things. He mentions adultery and that the result would be that men would place restrictions on God's law, which he says is wrong. This is probably a good time to mention that Thomas More was a notable Renaissance humanist. Humanism has a different meaning or connotation the way we use it today, but Renaissance humanism was basically an intellectual movement that was popular in the 14th through 16th centuries, and it claimed that a renewed study in the classical world, antiquity, and the humanities was essential not just to a well-rounded education, but to what it is to be human and to realizing a person's full potential. That's a laughably brief description, but it gives you an idea. Now, the Renaissance humanists tended to be religious, as was Thomas More. Their philosophy sought to renew Christianity rather than push it aside. I think this gives us a little bit of insight into some of the religiously based reasoning that comes into play throughout this book. The other big argument that Hitlerday makes against having the death penalty for thievery is that it makes the punishment the same for stealing as it is for murder. He contends that if the punishment for each is the same, then what incentive is there for a thief not to kill his victim so that he can't turn him in or identify him? So if he's already going to be punished by death, and he has the further incentive not to get caught because of the death penalty hanging over his head, then there's no incentive for him to leave his victim alive instead of just killing him. Hithloday says this strategy turns thieves into murderers. That line of reasoning seems a little questionable to me. I'd like to hear what a modern day criminal psychologist or profiler would have to say about that. Doesn't really sound right to me, but what do I know? Next, Hithloday launches into what he believes would be a much better solution. First, he talks about the ancient Romans and how great they were at government and that condemning criminals to slavery was a great way to handle things. Then he tells his story about the fictional polylarets. Again, he's done that cool thing where he's tied his fictional story to the real world. He says the polylarets were a people who lived near Persia, and he thinks they have the best system for dealing with criminals. It gets a little weird. It has to do with slavery or indentured servitude. They cut their hair really short and they cut off a piece of their ear so that they can be identified. They have to go around relying on handouts from other people for their food. But apparently these people are so generous that it's not really a problem. But anyway, according to Hitlerday, the death penalty is too severe, but a life of slavery is a-okay for those thieves. Then comes the little spat between the court jester and the monk. 
Reading that section, I was kind of unsure whether Moore intended to make fun of the jester and the friar or just the fool, but he was very devout religiously, as we know from his life and also how he died, which was as a martyr for his religion. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean he couldn't also be making fun of the church a bit, or at least men of the church. He was considered to be a wit and this work satirical. So yeah, they thought this stuff was funny back then. They didn't have, you know, Saturday Night Live until a couple years later. So here at the end of the story within the story, Hitler Day apologizes to Thomas More and Peter Giles for telling such a long and tedious story, which in my opinion is entirely justified. It was in fact much too long of a story. But the character of Thomas More is really, really, really into the story because all this stuff is just his jam. So he loves it. The rest of this section is just Hitler Day and Moore discussing all sorts of examples of how rulers think they're doing the right thing by keeping their populace poor and servile when in fact they're potentially shooting themselves in the foot. Next time, we will be finishing up with book one. Book two, and yes, there are only two books, is where we actually get to find out the details and particulars of Utopia. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it. And if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link at the bottom of the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website failedutopia.com or the Facebook page at Failed Utopia Pod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.